With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to Research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. And if you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, Please sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. I am planning on opening the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions or make a comment. And then, following the show, you can continue this discussion on Afrogenius.com and research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook pages. In fact, if you would, please like both pages. Now gather at the table the healing journey of a daughter of slavery and a son of the slave trade is the chronicle of a shared journey toward racial reconciliation. Informed by genealogy, it deals with race, social justice, and healing from the traumatic wounds of slavery. Over a three-year period of time, the authors travel through 27 states visiting ancestral towns, courthouses, cemeteries, plantations, antebellum mansions, and historic sites. Well, Sharon Leslie Morgan and Thomas Norman DeBoer will share this compelling journey with us. Sharon Morgan is an avid genealogist and also known as the founder and webmaster for OurBlackAncestry.com. Thomas Norman DeWolf, author of Inheriting the Trade, is featured in the Emmy-nominated documentary film Traces of the Trade, which premiered at the Sundance Film Festival and on the acclaimed PBS series POV. Tom speaks regularly about healing from the legacy of slavery and racism 
at conferences and colleges throughout the United States. And I'm so happy to welcome Sharon and Tom back to Blog Talk Radio. They were guests on this show when Gather at the Table was first released. And since that time, they have toured throughout the country sharing their story. So let me give a warm welcome to Sharon Leslie Morgan and Thomas Norman DeWolf to research at the National Archives and beyond. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be with you. It's great to be back. Thanks for inviting us. Well, thank you so much for coming. And this is the the last broadcast during Black History Month. And I thought that this would be a wonderful opportunity to bring you two back on the show. But Sharon and Thomas, I would like you all to really recap for everyone about Gather at the Table and share, first of all, how did you two meet? And then second, why did you decide to go on this journey together? Sharon? Those are big questions. <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> Tom and I met in 2008 at a program at Eastern Mennonite University. And it was a program to look into a model for healing historical harm, of which slavery is a very large one. I got there originally because of my interest in my own personal family genealogy, which is something that disturbed me greatly because, as you well know, because you're a genealogist too, Every time you go back into history and look at slavery and what has happened to black people, it raises a lot of emotion. So I was looking for a place to put my rage about the situation. And I accidentally discovered this program at Eastern Mennonite University. And Tom will speak for himself, but when we met there... We did not know each other, had no previous contact, and we didn't totally get along. I mean, it was just the place where we happened to meet. So the model, though, that they talked about was so intriguing that eventually we decided that we wanted to see if we could live it. And living it meant revisiting those horrible places of history and trying to make some sense out of it. So the idea was to take two people who were very opposite, somebody who was black, somebody who was white, somebody who was urban, somebody who was rural, a man and a woman, and take those opposing factors and witness things at the same time and try to make sense out of what our reactions to it were. So, Tom, now you should tell your side. Um, when we finished making the film, Traces of the Trade, um, we were contacted and invited to come to this gathering, and this was in early 2006, where black and white people working together on healing the historic wounds of slavery and racism, the legacy of slavery and racism. And it was called Coming to the Table, 
and started by white and black descendants of the system of enslavement in this country. And so I was one of the people from our Traces of the Trade family that, that participated in that weekend, and it was a discussion of trauma healing, of um, working with each other, making you know connections with people, um, real deep and authentic and accountable relationships with each other to um, work towards healing. It was all based in this um, model of uh, called STAR, Strategies for Trauma Awareness and Resilience. And it was a program that, that began after the attacks on the World Trade Center in September 11, 2001. And um, the Center for Justice and Peace Building at EMU was asked to create a program that, um, you know, works on on understanding that trauma is inevitable in life, but that there are healing processes um, for individuals and, and communities. And and so this, this coming to the table grew out of that program, understanding that, that the legacy of slavery is this gigantic unhealed wound that, that casts a, a, you know, a shadow over um, all the ideals of what America was, was talked about becoming. And so spending that, that weekend at coming to the table really turned me upside down after learning things I never learned in history class or history books about, you know, our nation's history, my family's history, New England's history, you know, that most of the slave trading, 95% of it was done out of the North, not out of the South. Um, so it was, it was pretty incredible. And, and, then it was another two and a half years before Sharon and I met. And, you know, as she pointed out, we, you know, didn't particularly hit it off when we first met. Sort of, we were there. We studied together along with a large class of others and then went our separate ways. But over the coming year, we ended up encountering each other multiple times in Chicago where she lived and at, a, you know, some weekend retreats that we both attended and we ultimately decided let's test this thing you know because so many people look at the concept of racism and think man that's just too big what can i do and so you know as sharon described just two people let's test this strategies for trauma awareness let's test this coming to the table approach to healing and 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 see you know we had no idea if this would work out, but if it did, we, you know, we made sure to um, write about it, keeping track of our thoughts so that we could eventually, um, you know, put it into book form, which we did. Right. Well, we have a, a question coming out of the chat room, and they just wanted you to uh, restate where the meeting was held. Eastern oh, Mennonite the, University, the Center yeah. for Justice and Peace Building. It's in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and EMU is known worldwide in peace building circles. They have worked with a number of uh, countries that have experienced war and other great trauma, and so they're really very well known within their their community. 
they're not as well known to the general public. Right. So they go. Okay, you want to say something, Tom? Oh no, just I just wanted to highlight that you know they put on every year a summer peace building institute, which is multiple classes over multiple weeks, and each one lasts about a week, and they focus on not just trauma healing, but conflict resolution, healing and forgiveness, uh, restorative justice. Um, And there are students from, there'll be students from 50 different countries that will participate in this program. It's, it's, it's just remarkable um, how, how well known this program is all around the world. Um, So it's easy to look at. If you go to our website, you'll find it, um, you know, or just look up CJP at EMU on Google, and it'll it'll come right up. Center for Justice and Peace Building, um, okay. and a lot of information on the Coming to the Table website as well. Coming to the Table dot org. Okay, so so you two made this decision that you would see if it worked. So take us through your journey. Just what did you do? And I I did kind of lay out you went through 27 states, but tell us how did you decide what you would do and then tell us what you did. <laughs> we mapped out using our personal genealogies. We mapped out a list of places that we should visit. So we went to places where Tom's ancestors came from. So we went to Rhode Island, where the DeWolfs were leading citizens. And Bristol, Rhode Island, is where one of the largest and most esteemed Independence Day parades in the country is held. And we went to Kentucky. We went to Mississippi, where my ancestors came from, and Alabama. We went to cemeteries and courthouses. We did some research along the way uh, at the various courthouses. And we made, I mean, we made this itinerary that was incredible because we stayed on the road for a month and went to most of those places. We started off, though, by going to Tobago, uh, which is an island that is not far from Venezuela. And we stayed in a plantation great house that was, when we arrived there, there was a list of people who had been enslaved on that plantation, and this was the house of the owner. So we wrote the first three chapters of the book there. And then after that, we knew we had a publisher, so we knew our journey was going to continue. So then we came back to the United States, and we did this month-long trip and it was the first time that Tom and I had spent a lot of time together because we're locked up in a car. We went to California, which we flew to, did not drive. And he met my family. I met his family. And then we came back east and then got in the car and did the rest of it. The Much of it was conversation because we're locked in this car together so you can't help but talk to the other person and there were some very tense moments because as you know even traveling with a friend can be difficult traveling with a stranger is even harder 
Mm-hmm. But we would talk about, we went to a lot of historic sites, museums. Uh, we crossed the Edmund Pettus Bridge. We went to the Voting Rights Museum, the Lowndes County Interpretive Center, uh, the Rosa Parks Museum, a lot of places like that, too, because it, then that expanded it beyond our personal genealogy. And we would talk about what we had experienced in any given day. And they were really enlightening conversations because we had agreed before traveling together that we were going to be very honest about our feelings and very forthcoming with them. So it wasn't about silently going along. It was really designed to encourage the conversation. So it was pretty incredible, and we would probably not advise that anybody else try to do it. Hopefully what we did can be a model for others because we would never suggest that you get in a car with a stranger and and drive 6,000 miles. Well, I guess that a whole lot of uh, learning probably took place during those miles and traveling and sitting in the car with each other. But, Tom, how did it feel for you to travel with Sharon and to, as you went through this kind of process, what what came out of the dynamics of your traveling to these different places? You know, when we, when we started, um, you know, we talked about what we were going to do for a while, and it was Sharon's initial thought that if we're going to do this, you know, we really want to understand each other um, and where we come from. So it's her concept of getting us together with each other's family. And we went to where each of us had, you know, been born and grown up and showed each other the, the schools we went to, the hospitals that we were born in, except that neither one of them exist anymore. But, the you know, where they were um, and, you know, seeing, getting a sense of where a person is from and meeting their their siblings, their cousins, their aunts and uncles, their, you know, grandchildren. You know, we really, we've gotten to know each other's families um, quite well. And I think that was a really brilliant idea right from the beginning because the biggest challenge I think that we face is is it's so easy if you don't know someone to then identify them as the other. When you begin to develop trusting relationships and commit to those relationships, um, you're then building you're building knowledge of each other. You're you know it's like any relationship or friendship. Um, the more you know, you'll figure out there's some people that are not going to get along. Absolutely. And, and Sharon and I both recognize that. We talk about those people all the time. <laughs> but <laughs> she and I found so much in common, as much as we had that was different. We enjoy, you know, uh, just lots of the same music. Not all, but a lot. We enjoy a lot of the same foods. Again, not all, but a lot. And finding all of these things in common and senses of humor 
and the way that we, you know, on a practical level, the way that we approach writing um, was a lot to learn. And, you know, me being the white guy sometimes in a situation where it's all people of color, um, there's times when I recognized how deeply sort of thoughts and and biases are are built in. Um, I remember a time when we're at Sharon's cousin's house and uh, her cousin's son says, oh, you all got to watch this. And he turns up the sound on his computer and it's Louis C.K., the comedian, talking about white people. And it's hilarious and it's harsh. And everybody's laughing. I mean, Sharon's falling on the floor laughing. And I find myself thinking, is it appropriate for me to laugh here? You know, this is at the very beginning of our of our journey. And there there are moments like that where I realize just how much issues of race permeate below the surface in our unconscious minds mm-hmm. and how much work we have to do to move through that um, and get beyond. Because she, she and I, you know, Sharon and I went to a lot of places and multiple, uh, the big trip was that one month long 6,000 mile drive, but we went to a lot of different places, um, you know, over a two, two or three year period as we were writing the book and yeah. experiencing this and, and just making the commitment to not only gather at the table, but to stay, even when mm-hmm. it got hard, which which it, it does get hard. Yes, it does get hard. But, you know, one of the, the comments that you made, Sharon, was you said you would not recommend this. But then I'm listening to you, Tom, and you, you're saying, well, it does help you to get a sense of of where people are coming from and also to develop a trusting relationship. So, I, I, Well, I would say that it's, it's not that we wouldn't recommend that people – what we're saying is getting in a car and driving 6,000 miles in a month is pretty crazy. <laughs> However, working, building up relationships with people that you consider the other, that's what we want to inspire. Yeah. You know, but people, you know, we're we're just not saying you don't have to do what we did. Find your own path. Find your mm-hmm. own journey, but do something. Is that accurate, Sharon? Is that fair? Absolutely, because the, it, it's the 6,000 miles in 30 days that's the killer. But the idea is to create real relationships with other people. We did not in any way want this to be a, I'm going to adopt a black friend or I'm going to adopt a white friend. It had to be something that was deeper than that. And you will find that, like white people will say, well, oh, I have a black friend. But then if you ask them, have you ever been to their house? And they haven't. Do you know their children? Do you know their children's names? And they don't. So I think that's the example that we're trying to give, that these relationships, you need to open your heart and engage in a true relationship where you're being honest. 
And that's what we did. So we want people to follow that example. It's just don't get in a car and drive 6,000 miles in 30 days. There's <laughs> a comment coming out of the the chat, and this is from Karen, and she's, she's saying it seems like there was there was lots of opportunity for listening, understanding, validating, and hopefully empathizing. So if if that's what what happened as you all in, engaged in in your dialogues and got mad with each other or had some experiences that you could laugh about, then these th this seems like it was definitely worth the the time that you put in to really establish in a relationship. Yeah, I mean in Rhode Island, Tom and I talked about how he felt really about his family and this slave trading history. And as we're walking through the house that they used to own, this big mansion, that was very enlightening because he's a contemporary person and this happened a long time ago. But yeah. I don't know that he had ever, he wrote a book and stuff, but there were things that came out that were very big personal insights that were really helpful to me. And when we went to Alabama and we dug up the tombstone of this white man that I think is the father of my great-grandfather, and he helped me do that. And, you know, we talked about, I knew the tombstone was there, which is why I went, but I had to go with a white person because it's in an all-white area and it's an all-white cemetery. And if I was digging up a tombstone, I'd probably get shot. Mm -hmm. But with him being there, it made it possible for me to do that. And we were successful, and it was the man that I was looking for. So mm -hmm. sharing experiences like that really gets you in touch with the humanity of the other person. And it really does help you understand, you know, what kind of, of person they are. You know, their, their spiritual foundation and their, you know, their, their uh, level of commitment to doing something like this. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so the book came out in 2012, and both of you had the opportunity to travel throughout the country and to share your journey. What I'm really curious about are the reactions that you receive from your book. In general, it's been very positive. When we do presentations, we go to schools, we go to community organizations, a lot of different places. And there does seem to be a well of interest that this was something that was unique and that people really are looking for a solution because many people have really gotten tired of this racial paradigm that makes all of our lives unhappy. And so we find, though, that our audiences are usually self-selecting, so you don't get people who are negative, uh, but you get people who are interested and you're just giving them more information about black history, about the contemporary status of African Americans, about what we can do to make changes and how we relate to one another. So it's been really positive. We did an event a few weeks ago at DePaul University in Greencastle, Indiana, 
and the entire school, the whole student body, all of the professors, everybody, it was 3,000 people, they were all there. And they lined up at the end to ask questions, and they were a very receptive audience. And they, I believe, they learned a lot from what we said to them. So we felt like when we left, we had really left a positive mark, something for people to really think about, and perhaps mm-hmm. changed people's lives. And what kinds of questions did they ask? Oh, they <laughs> They ask everything from the ridiculous to the sublime. <laughs> the... A lot of people do not, a lot of white people have worn blinders. They've grown up isolated from having to think about any of these things. So many of the questions relate to that. It's kind of like, how come I didn't see this? Or they will say, well, I'm not racist, I'm not prejudiced, uh, so te- what what does this mean to me? And we would point out that you live in such an isolated world, you don't even see where you're being racist or you're being prejudiced. There are all kinds of microaggressions that people do, like can I touch your hair, that uh, they're not aware of. It is a topic, though, that black people have talk about all the time. But we don't really we don't usually talk about it with white people. We talk about it amongst ourselves. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it was like that. You know, and it's been it well, it's been really interesting <clears throat> over the past two and a half years that you know, on the one hand, we're on the road a lot together, and so our relationship continues to grow and evolve, and. I mean, you know, Sharon has stayed in my wife's and my home many times. We've stayed and I've stayed in her home many times. Um, And, you know, and we're on the road together, not for a month and 6,000 miles, but we, I I mean, she talks about DePaul University. That was when that horrible storm hit and shut down all the airports in New York. Sharon drove for 16 hours to make sure that she arrived in Indiana for this this event, this appearance. You know, that's the kind of commitment um, that, that she has made to this work and that we do together. And, and you know, we've now been developing interest from corporations. We spoke in front of 1,200 General Electric employees at a conference in Washington, D.C., a global symposium that was put on by the African American Forum within General Electric, um, we you know spoke at the League of Black Women conference. Um, that's you know uh, female business leaders. Um, so it's it's and the thing is, a lot of these folks are beginning to reach out to us. Just a week and a half ago, we spoke at the St. Louis College of Pharmacy, and uh, they found us and. We had not we had not known about that college prior. They're also eight miles from Ferguson, where Michael Brown was killed last August. There's a lot of issues and a lot of trauma 
in this whole region and Ferguson and St. Louis and all around that area. So they brought us in for a three-day residency where we're meeting with the president of the college, his administration, um, staff members, student activities directors, the students, of course, professors. We did a half-day workshop where we're really diving into issues of trauma and understanding, you know, what's what's needed here. And the kinds of questions, like Sharon said, they just kind of run the gamut depending on the people who are present there. And the the kind of reactions we get are, have been, you know, in person, they're always great. If it's online and somebody can be anonymous after we do a radio interview or something, they can be really nasty. Um, but, you know, that's those are hurt people that are just lashing out and don't know what to do with, with their own trauma. So, mm-hmm. you know, recognizing that because of the, the training that we've had and the research that we've done allows us to, to I think, work with a, a wide variety of people and, and accept that some people are just in a different place on their life's journey than, than others are. Right. But you mentioned Ferguson. We actually have someone in the chat that she states that she lives in Ferguson. But you you mentioned trauma. But what about just the anger and the feeling of helplessness that you just, something is going to happen bad just because of your race, just because you're black? And how do you wake up every morning thinking that everything is going to be okay, and then you look on the news and you see something else has happened? One of the things that is at the root of this trauma healing model is something called cycles of violence, and it is the graphic is a symbol that is an infinity symbol. And what it shows is how violence progresses and how the different reactions that people have to it. One of the issues that I had, that I still have, but more so at the beginning, was that I am a really paranoid person for exactly that reason. Because you never know what is going to happen, particularly because of your race. So there was a a time, Tom and I are on the road, we're going to his sister's house. This was early on. This was out in California. And I got really scared because I'm in this car with this white man I do not know, and we are driving way up in the country where there's no other traffic. It is, we're crossing the bridge over a creek, and it's like, I don't know where the hell I'm going, and this is really not a good idea. Of course, it worked out very well. But that sense of unease stays with you every day. And that is one of the reactions to the trauma, is that you just have this uh, uh, disembodied feeling of, of doom. It's like something really bad is going to happen. And it takes a while to work through that, and I haven't totally worked through all of it. But it can be done. And so this program that we are involved with strategies strategies for trauma awareness and resilience 
helps you make sense of that. It helps you understand how you're feeling and what you need to do in order to work through it. And one of the things about working through it is confronting it. You really do have to deal with it. You have to look at it, examine it. you got to look at the history when it comes to black-white relationship. You have to look at slavery. You have to face those painful things. And that's a first step toward healing is just dealing with it. For white people, it's taking off those blinders and stop acting like something is there's nothing wrong and stop ignoring the history and stop ignoring things like my ancestor was the largest slave trader. And that's the beginning of the journey, and that's a really powerful step forward. Well, I want you to talk more about that, but we're going to take a quick break and come back so that we could talk a little bit more about strategies of trauma awareness and resiliency, and then talk about just how does reconciliation fit within your your journey. So a quick break, everyone, and I'll be right back. Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. And all of the shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded through Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. Well, you have been listening to Sharon Morgan and Thomas DeWolf discuss their book, Journey at the Table, and the experiences they've had since publishing the book. Now, right before we went on the break, Sharon mentioned the strategies of trauma awareness and resilience. And Sharon and Thomas, I would just like to just have you all talk about, well, what role does denial play when you're talking about strategies? Because while we can talk about it, we see people every day, there seems to still be this big denial that racism exists, that people are being treated differently. And that's not really true because people are being treated differently. So let's talk about that for a minute. Do you want to go, Sharon? No, I want you to talk about it. 
Oh, great. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, when people are treated differently, and I, of I, 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 so much, I think, at the core of all of this work that Sharon and I do is the belief in the need for honest education, honest understanding of our history and how that's led to present-day circumstances. And, you know, it's like you read about or see on television, you know, whether it's, whether it's you know, Michael Brown being killed in Ferguson or whether it's, you know, Eric Garner being choked, being killed in a chokehold in, in New York. Um, you know, John Crawford, Tamir Rice, so many other unarmed black people dying at the hands of police. A white guy kills a bunch of people in a Colorado movie theater. He gets arrested. A white guy shoots Gabrielle Giffords, a United States representative, and, and kills a bunch of people that are with her. He gets arrested. And I just, you know, people are treated differently. And it's... We need to understand why this is and how we're training police officers, how we're training teachers, how we're training other caregivers to understand the impact that unconscious bias and trauma has on us individually and collectively. And I I mean, I get hopeful when, you know, James Comey, the director of the FBI, um, just a few weeks ago, spoke about, you know, we've got some real issues with law enforcement, you know, talking about hard truths, about unconscious bias, um, about how, you know, a white cop is going to react differently to a white face than a black face. When you've got the director of the FBI saying that, people pay attention. When you have, you know, the attorney general of the United States saying, when it comes to issues of race, we're a nation of cowards. People listen to this. That that So I think that we've got some real opportunities here when we begin to focus on what we really need to learn in this country. And the only way that we break out of these cycles of violence is finding places of safety and support with each other. If all we face all the time is danger and these biases that are attacking me, my family, my community, my street, you know, my friends, what it, what are you going to do but get caught up in these cycles of violence? Um, but but there are ways to break free of this, and it, it's, you know, the acknowledgement, the understanding of what has taken place and being really honest about our desire to heal rather than our desire to perpetuate um, this injustice. And it involves mourning and grieving the the horrible aspects the traumatic aspects of our history, um, dealing directly with our fears and um, and our loss, um, looking at the story of the other, and trying to stop dehumanizing each other and recognize that we are one large human family, and we've got to figure out what the root causes of all this is. And and you know, frankly, this is risky business. And for Sharon to do what she's done, you know, traveling with me these last few years, that's risky business. And it takes a lot of courage to get in a car, I think, with a white man you don't know and head out for head out on the road. So 
taking those kinds of risks and and you know you asked about reconciliation white yes. people in my experience want to move really quick towards reconciliation if everybody will just be nice to each other and let's reconcile but don't want to do all the other hard work that leads up towards the possibility of forgiveness the possibility of integrating all of this into a new into a new reality you know we got to deal with justice here establishing justice in our world not in the way that our criminal justice system too often does but really understanding what true justice is all about that that restores everybody who's been harmed as much as as possible and uh, it it's hard work and it's so much easier for a newscaster on 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 you know a talk radio program or a tv show just spouting off about you know we just got to do this and lock these criminals up and it's it's not helpful it's not healing and then you have to look at the example of when mr obama was elected president and all of a sudden america is now post-racial and we're not you look at the way that he's been treated and it's obvious and I think that it's become obvious to a lot more people than it was before because the behavior toward him has been so egregious. So people cannot remain blind unless they are incredibly stupid. The American society is changing colors. It is becoming more black and brown than white, and we will be in the majority very soon. So in the flux of all of this, people have got to change. But what has to change is the institute. This is so ingrained in our society. Racism is so ingrained. It is institutionalized. So 10 times as many black men go to prison as white men for the same types of crimes. White people in Colorado are making billions of dollars now for doing what black men have done to survive, selling weed. And so this, these feelings, these systems are all working against us. But those systems can't change until people change. And that's where, that's the crux of what we talk about, is that you have to make a commitment to individual change, and then you have, that must motivate you toward changing the institutions that continue the system that is not to anyone's benefit. Right, and we have a question coming out of the chat, and I'll I'll read it to both of you, and please, I want both of you to respond to it. What are we reconciling? Is it specific, or is it a go with the flow and everyone gets along? In an ideal world, what do you think that looks like? Reconciliation is involves being able to accept the other and not make them not continue to think of them as the other as tom said we are all part of one big human family so but in order to reconcile we have to get over the race issue and that means changing how you look at the world and how you look at people who are other than you and that goes for black people and white people. And it also involves something, a concept of something called restorative justice, because it is not possible 
to have total reconciliation until you have been restored in some way. Restorative justice means you have to look at all of the people who have been harmed and what's going to make them whole. So one big move toward that would be something like H House Bill 40 that Congressman Conyers has put up for the last 20 years that will look at the legacy of slavery, at what slavery did to American society and how that can be changed. So reconciliation requires also a very deep look at restorative justice. Okay. Tom? Tom? Well, I yeah, and I you know again, to me, what re- reconciliation looks like it looks like honesty, it looks like facing our history, facing the root causes of the wounds that we all share. We may share them and experience them in different ways, but we've all been wounded by the legacy of slavery and racism in this country. And so acknowledging that and facing that history together, building connections that are sometimes not easy to to build because we've got centuries of terror and mistrust that have been built up. Um, But really listening to the stories of each other, because so much of this is we all want to be heard. And if I spent all my time talking and not listening, well, that's how I was trained. So for me to spend the kind of time that, you know, Sharon and I have spent together and just, just listening, she's been really angry when we're together. She's been really sad and horrified and, you know, learning to deal with really strong emotions is another important aspect of this. And I, you know, when you look at the the, the star model, you'll see reconciliation is the very last thing on the list. And it's the possibility of. There's no guarantee this is hard work. But what it looks like is it looks like authentic relationships, honest relationships, um, and and people who are serious about working through these issues together. And You know, there's a, a lot of folks, and God bless them, they're working on legislation, they're working on laws. Where Sharon and I have come down is what this looks like is it looks like one heart and one mind at a time. And and so that's, to me, the, the biggest learning that, that I've taken from this work of these last several years with Sharon is the only person I can totally control is myself. And even that's not easy to do because there's so much that's ingrained. Um, But as I do that, as I live my life as an example of the way that the world ought to be from my perspective, it ought to be non-racist. So let's let's work to undo racism. It ought to be non-sexist. Let's work to undo gender discrimination or religious intolerance. I mean, my goodness, look at the challenges that Muslim people in this country face these days. Um, And how do we work through these issues towards reconciliation? We've got to do the hard work first. Right. Well, I have I have some comments, so I'm going to just throw out some of the comments that are coming out of the chat room. Uh, Family Tree Girl, she's pointing out that it's troubling because there's 
there are some that still don't know in this country we don't teach the truth. And how do you reconcile when the truth is not out there? Yeah. A lot of that is a personal quest. I mean, as you know, as a genealogist and historian, you're not going to get it in school. And that's a shame, but that is true. So you have to find these things on your own. Most of what I know about black history, I did not learn in school. I learned because I'm a just a, a aggressive reader. So I think that you have to take it upon yourself to educate yourself and look for information that is not commonly handed to you because it won't be. That's part of what perpetuates the system is that people are not told the truth. They're not given the information. Black History Month is one month. It is not all year long. So it's something that you have to make a personal commitment to doing it. Right. And then we have another comment coming out of the chat. Most of us in the genealogy community are privy to information about history by way of our own study of, of history, family research, and even DNA testing. But sometimes we are mystified by the reactions of our white counterparts, some of whom are our cousins. Yeah, a lot of people don't want to know this information. They don't. In my family, I had a great-great-grandmother who had 17 children with the nephew of her owner. And I spent years searching all of those 17 children, looking for descendants. And I found many of them who live as white people. And they don't want to look at it either because there is a taint associated with being considered black. So when you first communicate with somebody in your family who is like that, it is really, it is often very difficult for them to accept it. But it is true, so they can't run away from it. And my response to that has been that I have actually personally visited these people and brought my documentation with me so that there is no argument. You can't say you're not related. And I try to be as kind as I can be in presenting it, and eventually they come around. So it's it's a barrier, but I don't think that it's insurmountable. A lot of times you'll send a message to somebody, and when you say, well, you provide the proof, well, we are related, and then you won't hear back from them online for a very long time, if at mm -hmm. all. And I can't answer that problem for everybody, but I would – say don't give up because you are entitled to this as much as they are. So you ha you just have to persist. Right. And Tom, there's a question. I'd like to know your thoughts on uh, individuals that have tested, taken a DNA test and they've found uh, that they have, these are African Americans, that they have white cousins. And uh, what would your reaction be if you found out you had black cousins? You know, it's 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 a you know a great question, and I think part of my responsibility as a white man that you know you look at me and I represent the the look of oppressors for centuries and centuries, and it feels to me like my one of the most important roles for me is to stand and be counted. 
and to stand as an example and inspire other white people to stand up and do this work. And there are a lot. We've got, gosh, a couple thousand people involved in one way or another with coming to the table through our, you know, getting our newsletter, through being in our Facebook group. Um, we have an internal network through the website. Um, you know, we have local gathering groups in 10 or 12 different communities around the country. And there are black and white people working together. And and a lot of this, it really does need to be white people standing up to be counted. Because a lot of other white folks are just afraid. And they need to see the example of others of us standing up and doing this work. And mm-hmm. and we're seeing this more and more in, in organizations. There's an organization called Surge, S-U-R-J, Showing Up for Racial Justice. That is, you know, they've got like 47 groups around the country in 25 different states that are doing the work of white people showing up and coming to the table is doing this. There are other organizations and and and, and groups that are that are doing so. Um, so I, it's a it's a it's taken us hundreds of years to build these wounds, and it's going to take a lot of work to get out of it. But I, I you know, I encourage white listeners to this program you know read our book check out our website check out the coming to the table website and you know the more that white people educate ourselves about this the more obvious it becomes what Mm. some of what needs to happen to to heal this heal these wounds right now, be- before we close out tonight, I want you to just talk to uh, to all of us about coming to the table and uh, the coming to the table approach to healing the persistent wounds of institutional or just looking at what, what has happened as a result of slavery. So just tell us about that. Well, I know we're getting close, so just very briefly, you know, coming to the table grows right out of that star model. And there's basically four pieces to the puzzle. It's facing history really honestly and openly. That's personal history and national and world history. Making connections with people within and across racial lines. Um, you know, deep, authentic relationships. Working towards healing in all the ways that we've discussed about, about star. And then taking action. You know, if you're road isn't a 6,000 mile road trip with somebody you don't know very well, find out what action you can take in your workplace, in your church, in your school, um, whatever that may be. And, you know, coming to the table.org, check out the website. There's a ton of resources there that um, I think people would find really useful and a lot of free downloadable booklets and, and, and guides. Um, and, and join us online. Plenty of opportunity there. Right. And so as we close out the show tonight, what are your kind of words of wisdom to others so that they can learn from your experience or experiences? In the last chapter of the book, which is called Ripples on a Pond, we talk about what is possible the big thing that we want people to do is like throw your rock in the pond and you know how those concentric circles keep evolving outward. So you must do something to make a difference because if we just sit here and talk about it and don't really act, 
nothing is ever going to change. So we want everybody to be to make a ripple in the pond and make a difference. Okay, and Tom? I I can't say any better than what Sharon just said. Okay. So everybody, everybody has a responsibility to yes. to do something. And the genealogy community. Yes. You know, we talk about, we got to reach out and reach in. The genealogy community has to kind of open up too. So that, yes. you know, go to a genealogy meeting and see five black people. You have to reach out to bring people in. And it's the yeah. vice versa. Yeah, so absolutely. Yeah, you know, we we definitely have have to do our part, especially since we in the genealogy community we're studying history, we're seeing it, we're living it because we're going through the documents. We know what has happened, so it it is something that we certainly want to uh, encourage. Definitely encourage. Well, Sharon and Tom, I want to thank you so much for coming on tonight. And to revisit Gather at the Table with us, uh, a book that many of you may want to go back and read again because there are many lessons to be learned from the journey that Sharon Morgan and Thomas DeWolf took. So thank you so very much for coming on to the show tonight. And everyone, Thank you for having us. Oh, yes. And everyone, remember, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and the Afrogenius.com Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday morning. I have posted the March lineup for all of you to see. Very exciting shows are planned for next month. And so thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by your host, Bernice Beebe's Genealogy Research and Educational Services. And my website is www. GenieBeeRoots.com. Well, I look forward to everyone joining me next Thursday. So good night, everyone. Good night, Sharon and Tom. Good night. Good night.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.